Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Uh, Kelsey Barrow is probably going to walk off the stage. Why you got something to read here, John? I'm sorry. I lost the scripture. I was laughing nice. so hard. <laughs> no, we're going to go into this. And right now for Global Wall Street, we're going to freeze time. We're going to get through this for Bob Michael and Kelsey Barrow because they're the real deal. They're J.P. Morgan, asset management. And we're going to ask a really delicate inside baseball question so she can go back to the new skyscraper on Park Avenue. Explain without addressing your bank, your business, Mr. Diamond would say that's appropriate. The decisions being made right now of my bond losses, I have to mark to market versus I can hide them somewhere else. Go. Right. So we've been talking about the losses in the bond market. I think it is important to put into context, though, the majority of the pain was last year, right? The U.S. ag was down 13% last year, down 2% this year. But Real, more, uh, more recently, we have seen this backup in yields and this pain that's coming. Now, I think the reason why the stress in the banks has been a little bit less uh, acute this time around than in March is because of the BTFP program. So the What's bank that? term funding program. Close, not exactly though. Um, So BTFP, the Fed put that in place in March. And I think if there's one thing that really was crucial to turning the markets around at a point where we were very stressed, we were very uncertain, about how things would go in the future, that BTFP program was important because banks can now pledge those treasury securities. And even though they have a price in the marketplace of 70 or $80, they can be pledged at par. So there's been this stabilization factor that was not there back during the March crisis. So are we saying as these unrealized losses get greater, they matter less? They they are mattering less right now. I think there is still stress, though. This is not the end of the story, right? Even though this facility is in place, people are using it, there's $108 billion in the facility, there still is going to be pressure on margins. You know, it's not only uh, about the mark-to-market losses, but it's about the fact that net interest margins are under pressure. So, you know, as as an investor in financials, you do need to be very cautious about where you're investing, 
understanding the portfolios and the balance sheets of the banks that that you are investing in, um, and, and being aware of the game changer that was the way the Fed reacted back in March. Are the bank's ability to finance the economy curtailed by the dynamics we're talking about? Are they constrained? Yeah, so if you look at the H8 data, and, and I love to look at this every single week on Fridays, I'm looking at Lisa because I know she looks at it too. All the time. Um, what you're going to see is that credit has been contracting in the economy. If you look at CNI lending over the last three and six months, it's negative. If you look at the senior loan officer survey, it's showing that there is tightness in credit conditions. And like you mentioned, Lisa, this is exactly what the Fed wanted, right? They want to engineer tighter financial conditions. So I disagree with um, the quote from Goolsby that he doesn't know where this is coming from. I really do think that this stems from the September FOMC meeting and the dot plot. Sure, they still showed cuts next year, but what they showed is a real policy rate that actually goes up by 50 basis points next year. That is a very hawkish message, and the, and the market is still trying to digest that right now. So if we're talking game theory, this is basically the idea from your perspective, it sounds like, that the Fed is trying to signal hawkishness so they can engineer the landing so that then they can reverse course and cut rates. How do you respond then to people, including uh, what we heard from Dalip Singh over at PGM, that there is a structural change in the bond market where some of the longstanding price and sensitive buyers are no longer there? So there has been a big repricing, and I think this is why you need to look at this not just from an emotional perspective, not just from you know the ping pong narrative, but also from a logical perspective. You know, what do valuations look right, like right now, and what are the guardrails to those valuations? Look at the five-year, five-year real yield right now. It's around 2.3%. That is the same or the at average rate that the five-year, five-year real yield was from 2003 to 2007. So we've already repriced, not just to the pre-COVID levels, but to the pre-GFC levels. So regime shift has really already happened. In our view, it's actually an overshoot, um, but, it's, but it's already happened. Although I will just uh, push back, and I know that you've been bullish on treasuries and talking about going back down to 3%. Have you reconsidered that call at all, especially in light of some of these structural changes? Yes, we can talk about inflation. But Torsten Slakovapalov just putting out Treasury auction sizes will increase on average 23% in 2024. We have evidence that a lot of the central banks around the world, traditional buyers, are no longer buying. Doesn't this change your outlook more materially? So the technicals do matter, particularly in, in the shorter term horizons, but we do think ultimately the fundamentals and the valuations are going to, to uh, weigh over those technicals over the medium term. Inflation right now, the three-month run rate on core PCE is 2.16%. I mean, we're at the Fed's target. We're not in the 1970s and the 1980s here in terms of the economic growth environment or the inflation environment. Um, I think that there has been a buyer strike. Uh, uh, cut to the chase. They're fighting the last war. Is that what you're saying? You're I having coffee with Mike Ferroli over at J.P. Morgan. Can you guys agree Goosby uh, and the rest of them are fighting the last war? Yeah, they're fighting inflation that I think is already clearly coming down. And I understand why they're going to wait until it's painfully obvious. But in my mind, that only just reinforces the risk that hard landing should be much more of a higher probability than soft landing. Because the Fed is telling you, they're telling you, we're not going to stop until it's painfully obvious that the economy can't 
can't handle it. And the housing market, you look at the mortgage application data from yesterday, it clearly can't handle it. Um, we think that the economy is not going to be able to handle these rates, but the Fed is going to be the last to admit that. Cassie Barrow there of JP Morgan Asset Room. Management. Sarah Hunt joins us now, Chief Market Strategist at Alpine Saxon Woods. Sarah, good morning. Good morning. I always go to energy with you at the end of the interview. We should go there at the start. <laughs> Crude was dreadful yesterday, down almost 6%. I know that things at Cushing looking a little bit better on the stockpile side of things. Gasoline demand really soft as well, based on a recent read. What do you make of the recent moves? Well, I think, I mean, we talked about this last time. If crude prices rise really quickly, then gasoline prices come up commensurately, and then all of a sudden you do have a backing down in demand. And I think part of it was the demand numbers on gasoline. I think part of it is also sort of the parallel to the bond market, which is all of a sudden the market's going, well, if we do have a recession or if the world is slowing down, then crude prices may be too high. And part of the reason they're high is because the Saudis have taken some off the market. It's not just a problem of, of higher demand and not enough supply. But I think the supply side is going to stay somewhat restricted, and I think that's really going to ultimately be the longer-term story. But you are going to have these convulsive moves. And the stocks hadn't caught up, not all of them anyway, to the higher prices in crude anyway. So I think that there is still some room in there, but it is going to be a volatile trade. I, I'm calling this never ever Thursday because I'm looking at bond charts that I've never ever thought about or imagined or visualized. Mathematically, folks, this is truly, without a cliche, this is truly original territory. How do equity participants react to never ever things in the bond market? Well, I think it's problematic for the equity markets that you're having such convulsive moves in the bond markets. And I think that part of the issue with equities has always been if rates do stay higher, what are we <coughs> discounting those cash flows at? I don't disagree that technology is one of the places that will actually do well, even in a higher rate environment, because you've got that stability of earnings and they've also got a lot of cash on their balance sheets. But I think that the question of what everybody else is going to do yeah. and how that's going to impact people's balance sheets. Corporations in Europe, I read a story this morning on Bloomberg that said that corporations in Europe are finally back breaking down and and issuing bonds at higher rates than they would have a year ago. So are people starting to accept that? And if so, that's going to take some of the money out of the income right. statement because they're going to be paying higher prices. So I think that some of that is going to impact the earnings for next year. And that's still what I don't think is, is really reflected the, through the, next year. The heart and soul of this is Q4 into next year, do you go with a diversified virtual index fund, tight R squared approach, or are you active and take a less diversification approach. Which is it? I got my own opinion, but which do you think? I think active. I mean, that's also active, I'm, I'm, more I'm narrow, more narrow, yeah. and also looking at where you think there might be some vulnerability, which indexes can't really do, right? Because they are going to rebalance yeah. the way they rebalance, and I think that there are some places that are going to continue to be vulnerable. Do you think that the bond sell-off has been coherent with the other moves that we've seen in the markets? You know, it's so hard on these very short-term moves to figure out, is this a technical problem? Is this a quant problem? Is Where is this coming from or where are these moves coming from? And I think it's very difficult to parse that out and say how it interacts. But I do think that there are large positioning changes. And when those happen, it's not always easy to see. I mean, there was questions about whether or not the BOJ was intervening, right? Because the yen went through. And was what did that happen? Or was that just a technical level that everybody said, oh, 150, we're getting so close. We have to do something. So I'm not really sure on those very short-term moves how they go together. But longer term, they will start to make more sense. Although, you know, you've had correlations that are very different over the last couple of years than normal. So make more sense is a relative term. The reason why I ask that is because if yields stay at levels that we're seeing right now, if there is something fundamental behind this or even structural when it comes to price sensitive buyers, newly price sensitive buyers, how much does that change the equation for you in the equity sphere? I mean, aside from oil, aside from some of these specific bets, 
Is there a rethink about the value proposition with some of the overweights you've had to equities? Well, I think that you've been seeing that for the last two years, right? Since, or the last year and a half. Since the Fed started raising rates, the question has been wither bonds, right? Where, where am I going with that? Because I'm now putting them back in a portfolio. When you talk about the big price erosion from the lows, when the 10-year when was sitting at basically 20 basis points, the, the fact that we're now up at levels that are over four I think people have been looking at that the whole time. But the problem is that as they've been adding the whole time, the prices have been coming down. So there's a little bit of um, scorched earth on the bond side, too, because people have lost money in bonds and in, in ways that they hadn't in the last couple of, in the last several decades. So I think that there is absolutely room for fixed income in people's portfolios. They, they are putting it back. But that was traditionally where you had some participation anyway. And I think that higher rates make that something that people look at more seriously especially as duration starts to look a little higher price than it was, because you were sitting high, high um, rates on the low end, but on the short end, but not on the long end, and that's starting to change a little bit. Not necessarily for the best for everyone. But. Just pulled up a quick chart. Average Fed funds going back to the 70s. Average is 493. I know that's skewed by a decade of zero, <laughs> but the average is 493. Is anything on a long bond close to 5% just a screaming buy based on history, or can you tell me that things are going to be markedly different? over the next couple of decades. Well, I think if governments hadn't indebted themselves to the extent that they have, then you could look at some of those numbers and say, we should have higher rates on the long end, because that was also more historic. But if I think about what that's going to cost governments, I have to wonder whether or not they can keep, we can keep collectively keep rates that high. And I'm not sure that we can control the long end as much, but I do think that going back to what we used to think of as more normalized is a little bit difficult given the fact that we've got this massive amount of government balance sheet that we didn't have 20 years ago. This is a big question. It's difficult to answer, but what is normal? The last 10 years, the 10 years before that, when we say things like normal, what is normal? That's going to be, I think, one of the biggest issues playing out going forward. Do we is Is the more normal... What happened after the great financial crisis and now that we've gotten this level of balance sheets for governments, do we just stay here and every time we have a problem we just keep adding to them? And does that break something eventually or do we go back to something that was before that? And I don't know what the answer is and I think that that tension is part of what's going to be playing out going forward in both the bond and the equity markets because it definitely had an effect on the equity markets as well. You can't say that it didn't with multiples where they are right now. You can feel that tension at the moment because you get these yields that people have been wanting for a long, long time, Lisa, and there is just that refusal to jump in. Sarah Hunt, Chief Market Strategist Alpine Saxon Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us, hugely qualified, Peter Shearer, head of Macro Strategy Academy Securities. He's enjoyed these kind of moves before. Bank of America, before they blew it up. Bob Cinch in foreign exchange, really experienced, and a guy riding a herd, a guy named David Goldman, who was in my book. David Goldman told me once, look at the tranches, and you nail this in your note, and everybody's looking at worry, worry, distress, South African ram, blah, blah, blah. And the David Goldman tranche is the quality stuff up here. You write about previously deemed safe assets. How close are we, are we to those better tranches of credit being previously deemed safe assets? Yeah, and you know, I've always looked at this world of, you know, you've got high yield and IG, and Treasury's always been that safe asset, super safe. And it feels like something's cracking. I think this time we're going to be okay. I think we're going to get the 10-year back below 440 because we're going to see kind of a really quick um, gap lower in yields as data comes out weak. But I do think something has cracked. And for the first time in my lifetime, people are actually questioning the trajectory of where treasuries are going to be. And that is very concerning to me because every financial bubble that we've ever had has always come when it's a safe asset that breaks. It's never the risky assets. It's when a safe asset breaks. And we had a whiff of that in the past kind of week or two. It was a test yesterday, though, and I think the test is always for developed markets. When bad things happen, do we buy treasuries? Something negative happened. We got a soft ADP report for whatever that's worth. We bought treasuries. Isn't that a decent stress test just to understand that if things do go south in the economy, this still works? You know, I think there's a lot of ebbs and flows. So everyone got so bearish on treasuries. People were piling into it. People have tried to buy treasuries. I've liked them since 425. I liked that 440. So people were very reluctant. So we finally had a bit of that capitulation trade right now. I think as weak data comes out, we're going to see treasury yields go lower. And then we're going to get back to thinking, OK, what is really the long-term trade? And I think that's probably now higher yields. You think there's a limit to how much bonds can rally, yields can fall on negative data? I think right now, yes. I think there, this overlying fear that DC no longer cares about our debt trajectory is problematic. I think if you look at the US as a you know, creditor, we don't seem to care about the debt. We don't seem to even necessarily want to pay the debt. There's all these kind of weird messages coming out of DC, and I think that's going to weigh on the market. When you said that the longer term trade is higher yields, how much higher, right? I mean, what are we talking about? at a time when you say that something has cracked, that the sell-off that we've seen so far has something sort of damaging inherent in it. So I think you're right when we were talking about no one could figure out why we kept moving wider every day, right? Yields kept going higher and higher. So there were, I think, a lot of things at motion. You have China no longer buying treasuries. I think you've got our supply issue. The only thing I think that is really going to prevent treasuries from next year breaking about 5% or higher is DC kind of getting its act together, starting to put forward budgets, starting to put forward something that resembles you know, fiscal responsibility. Um, if we don't get that, I think people are losing faith in that. And that's really problematic. But when you say that basically we're gonna get a drift lower and then when people start to understand that, they're gonna go higher again, doesn't there sort of a self-limiting feature to this? You said, you know, something cracked in terms of where we were going, the speed we were moving. Aren't we going to get some sort of bigger financial accident, like everyone's been saying, if we lead to you know, yields of 5% on the 10-year on a persistent basis? 
I don't think we get a financial accident necessarily. It depends on how rapid it is. So one, I think we get back to that 440. I don't think we get back to 4% because like you say, we've had this experience. I think it's a six month to a year long experiment where we start seeing what happens with the election, what the trajectory of the debt is. If people lose faith in that, then I think you go rapidly above 550, you start testing that, and that's where you get the forced selling. The reason I'm always concerned about safe assets is twofold. One, people own them in huge size in their portfolios because they were never worried about losses. If you start worrying about losses, that causes forced selling. And the other part is, what does the banking system own a lot of? And if the banking system, which is always levered, owns a lot of treasuries, and you see this never-ending push to yields higher, I think you see some forced selling and risk management there. So I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's the trigger that we've kind of got a, just a sniff of this time around. And go back even with housing, right? We had housing bubble, you know, it's broke a little bit in early 2007, late 2007. The ultimate problem didn't hit until 2008. Pete, you're making me want to just go and hide under a rock. What on earth do I own? if that's your outlook. So for now, I'm actually bullish, bizarrely enough, right? I do think we're going to get this weak <laughs> economic data. I think oil was way overdone. I think we're going to get this relief trade. Okay, there's not this inflation <clears throat> pressure. Yields start drifting back to 440. We send stocks higher. Everyone's underweight again. So we have to suck out that kind of pessimism. Then once everyone gets bullish again, then I can get really bearish there in positioning. Okay, wait, but what, what are you talking about? Are you basically saying that there is a bubble in treasuries that's going to burst with catastrophic implications to build on what John was talking about? I don't know if it will or not, but that's all of a sudden became awareness of everyone. And DC can fix this, right? DC can get its act together. I just think everyone's kind of grimacing because no one really believes DC is going to get its act together. Um, but I think that's really the hope is something comes through and DC starts going back to the days where you run a budget deficit when times are tough, but when times are good, you try and cut it back. Let's finish here. What does this mean for portfolio construction? A lot of people listening might sit down with a financial advisor and they give them the same old spiel. What we're going to do is split up this portfolio 60-40 and they're going to go on to explain why. Doesn't that all go out the window? I think you have to be very careful and you're looking for constantly risk management, right? What looks overdone, what doesn't look overdone, you know, the two year seems safe, but I think there's no value in the two year. At 490, there was a lot of value in the 10 year. I think down at 440, you want to expose that, but as you start shrinking and getting to these narrow ends of the range, take some off, take some bets there. I think you want to expose yourself to equity risk right now. You know, you really start making sure those exposures, where do you want to be in the world? And I think outside the U.S. could be interesting. Continue to look at emerging markets. I think you see a lot of trends there that are beneficial for emerging markets over U.S. Mm -hmm. There is a claim, and he wrote a great one volume on financial history, Chris Whalen, our Christopher Whalen. And he had a note last night which goes to the heart of the bid walking away in fixed income. It's the Whalen silence. And that is you've got a piece to sell, and you get on the phone, and there's nobody on the other side of the transaction. How close are we to the Whalen silence? I think we had, again, whiffs of that, right? The Treasury market, perfect. and that's all we've had so far. And I think, though, across all assets, you have, look at what's going on with oil. We've gone to this electronic algo-driven trading, so I think there's this perception of liquidity and there's no depth of liquidity. So the ability for markets to move very quickly is very high because we have this fake or full liquidity where everyone's scrambling around trying to make their penny or eighth of a point. And the reality is big moves push us very quickly. Bottle it. Clinic, a big what if, a lot of worries for a lot of people who might be listening to some of this, Peter, but ultimately buy risk in the short term, right? Buy risk in the short term. <laughs> Load the boat. But I would say this does remind me a bit when I was trading the credit derivative indices back in 2007, where you would just gap. You would go from 60 basis points to 68 basis points, no one knew why, and then you look and you trade at around 68. And that's the sort of moves I think we've been getting in these markets, whether it's oil, whether it's trades. You get these gap moves, you air pocket, 
everyone tries to make some semblance of it. But is it's this just one day option thing? Is that the new portfolio insurance? <laughs> you know, people are definitely pushing on that. And I think it's the opposite of portfolio insurance. I think it's used heavily to drive markets, push gamma trades. And I think everyone forgets that it can be used on the downside just as easily as it is in the upside. This isn't like some of the other trades, which were bullish only, like <clears throat> we saw with the ape stocks. This is really the ability to push direction. And I think they can lean on markets down to, as easily as up. Pete, this was great. Always walk away from our conversations with tons to think about. Peter Chair of Academy Securities. Kevin Tynan joined us here. What's important about our senior automobiles analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he's, he's kept count, he's got a wood mark in his garage, folks, of the number of times he's put the screw down the Chrysler uh, distributor when he's changing the plugs. Kevin Tynan, the real thing in the auto. Kevin, I've been dying to ask you, and it's in the zeitgeist, when are we done buying $100,000 EV vehicles that weigh the size of a Hummer H2? When does that party end? Uh, I think very soon. Well, I, I looked at it and, I, you know, look, the, the production launch and the new EVs coming out are set through 2024 and probably beyond. But I think what you're going to get as an inflection point is if you don't or if the automakers don't start to see you know, real demand and real profitability in that drivetrain type, uh, I think you're going to start to see by 2025, 26, and plans beyond that start to shift to something a little bit more practical. And we've been saying that might be the plug-in hybrid makes a, a reemergence, uh, you know, with battery technology. Maybe that's a 50 to 100 mile range in electric with the, you know, range extending uh internal combustion or hybrid engine on top of it. You know, so you're talking about 400 miles of range without, without the anxiety right. of where to charge or the, you know, the, this charging infrastructure that isn't quite ready. You know, I got eight more questions on this, but I believe there's, it's, Lisa, help me here. There's a strike still going on? Yes. It's just been buried by the news. I mean, there's no other way to put it. What's the new new on the UAW strike? Yeah, look, from my view, I think what you're going to get is a big number uh, for the UAW, but not a whole lot else. And I think that's probably what, what the issues are. The automakers can't hide their profitability over the past 10 years, and this mixed shift to truck from car has been very profitable for them, you know, and, and everybody sees it, right? But at the same time, they've done that with fewer units. So I think on the one hand, the manufacturers are saying, okay, we can give you a share of those profits, but we can't guarantee that we're going to be growing in size. And I think what, the, what a big number does, whether it's a 30% or somewhere in that ballpark, what it does, it also enables the union to go and show that contract to some of the non-union, whether it's pure play EV manufacturers um, or transplants in the U.S., that are, are operating with non-union labor to say, look what we did for our membership. Because at the end of the day, if the UAW wants to increase its member base, they can't keep going back to GM, Ford, and Stellantis. They're not growing in that way, right? So if this is about increasing your membership for the UAW, you're gonna have to go knock on some other doors. And I think a backhanded way that the, the, the legacy automakers, the domestic Ford, GM, and Stellantis brands can do it is to say, here's your big number, um, but we got to have the flexibility to get out of some capacity going forward. But yeah. go show this to some of those other plants and see what they say. 
Kevin, we're getting some sense from the auto manufacturers of just how much the strikes have been costing them. General Motors came out yesterday and said it already has cost them about $200 million since the strike began. We've heard uh, from Ford talking about the F-150 deliveries and how much they've been plunging uh, on the heels of a number of shuttering uh, factories. I'm just wondering at what point we can expect this to precede price rises in some of the cars that they deliver with the justification that really they've got to compensate for these costs. Yeah, and look, that, that production is not necessarily all lost. It'll shift to the next quarter or into 2024, um, but it's exactly that. And this is what we've seen. And it didn't really start just with production disruptions during the pandemic. You know, the automakers have been moving to this smaller model, uh, you know, more trucks, higher transaction prices, fewer units. So it isn't so much about scale anymore. And, and this is another part of that, where there's inventory on the ground, probably not quite enough, but ultimately all it does is firm up prices and the increased cost, although you know maybe the, the labor portion of cost of goods going forward is minimal after the contract, but at the end of the day, it's gonna remove affordability from the consumer, right? Because automakers are gonna have to continue to keep supply and demand tight and move up market to be profitable uh, on the operations. So that's really gonna hurt the consumer at the end of the day. Kevin, I was reading about BYD, which is becoming the biggest electric vehicle maker in China, and I was reading reading about how they grew up out of first imitating Toyota and then becoming so efficient that even Toyota was trying to understand exactly how they were doing it. How does the U.S. compete with China, all things being equal, without tariffs, without some uh, other guards between the two industries, if there's a very different playing field? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult. Look, though, the the macroeconomic, the government uh, influence varies region by region. You know, so the subsidies that you had in BYD, you know, back in the day, that's a company that was, you know, direct subsidy from the government was well over a billion dollars, probably over $40,000 per vehicle. We won't do that here. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it'll be difficult to keep them out. And the other thing I think that's going to happen is if we're going to get a rush of Chinese-built EVs in this country, they're going to go directly to the dealer network where we have this sort of perception now that the direct sales model, what Tesla does or Rivian and Lucid, um, is the way to go. I think those companies are going to achieve immediate distribution sale scale um, by going to the dealer base and saying, like, will you sell our product uh, as opposed to trying to deliver it directly to the consumer, which, you know, has issues with when you get paid for those vehicles, right? You can't book that revenue till you deliver them. But if you deliver them to the dealership, you can, right? So your gross margin stays firm um, and you have instant scale in terms of distribution. So it could happen very quickly, um, although there are still a lot of hurdles to get over for really China small manufacturers or EV manufacturers to get into this country. Hey, Kevin, just to wrap things up, and I know we touched on this briefly, but what are the odds that some of these manufacturers just don't get this transition done? They look into the future and they throw in the towel and say, this isn't going to happen. Yeah, and, and, and look, I don't know. that That's not a binary bet of bankruptcy or not bankruptcy, or you exist or you don't exist. Oh, absolutely. Like th th there's certainly a scenario where, you know, legacy automakers or global automakers leave that drivetrain business to the niche manufacturers, to Tesla, to, and it's a smaller part of the market. You know, certainly here, 
um, but maybe in other countries. And, and what you can get is to say like, we, and Toyota has been saying this the whole time, is like there needs to be options, right? So internal combustion will work in some regions or for some people, so will plug-in hybrid, so will gas hybrid, so will electric. Maybe hydrogen is, a, is an option too. You know, so, so I think that if it's about climate, Right, there needs to be options. If it's about capitalism, you know, that gets a little Precisely. bit- Precisely. Kevin, you know where I'm going with this. If it's about climate, it's not about massive SUVs that just happen to be electric. Let's, you know, let's face it. So it's not about climate. <laughs> Precisely. Kevin Tyner, thank you, sir, of Bloomberg Intelligence. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. That's, the that's gentleman rude. from Western Michigan outside Grand nice. Rapids on the fields of Michigan <laughs> joins us think, now. Yeah. Bill Heisinger. Bill, you know, I, I, the, last, the, 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 the thing that we've seen for the last 36 hours, I actually thought of you, and that people, Newt Gingrich has identified it as 4% of GDP. We went from Lincoln, southwest of your family's heritage, to 96% of the GOP in crisis. How do you people get back control of the party how do you get back control of the narrative? Yeah, that, that's a great question. In fact, I happened to see uh, uh, former Speaker Gingrich last night uh, at a dinner. Uh, but uh, it, is, uh, it is interesting. I, I do have to comment, uh, you know, you played Senator Blumenthal's uh, quote. And yes, uh, the House is a bit of a mess right now. But I would just point out those who live in glass senates shouldn't <laughs> throw stones, all right? Uh, because they have not done anything, anything when it comes to the appropriations bills until this year, and it was only until, if, when the House threatened and, and really pushed this whole notion that we needed to pass those 12 appropriations bills, that they actually passed anything out of committee. So uh, it, it, I'm glad to see that people are realizing that these massive Christmas tree omnibus bills are a horrible way of moving forward. Uh, but uh, yes, we've, we've, got a, we've got a mess in the House. Uh, we can't do anything until we pick a speaker. And uh, hopefully that, uh, that's going to come sooner rather than later. But I'm not sure that we're there yet. 
I, I look, Congressman, at the joy that America has that maybe we ought to have some successful small business people in Congress. You're one of them. You're, you're the gravel of Michigan, running gravel, moving it out, building things in that. How do, how do we take advantage in this crisis of a beleaguered small business? I, I think it's been ignored here for weeks yeah. and weeks. Well, you, first of all, you got to stop crushing them. Uh, and whether it's at local level, state level, you know, I'm a former state legislator. Uh, I know what uh, what can happen on the regulatory side as well as the tax side, uh, and certainly here at the federal level, uh, that uh, that is writ large. But we also know uh, the inflation uh, uh, impact has been massive. And I was uh, interested in, in hearing. I think it was Kathy uh, who was uh, on just prior to me. <coughs> talking about this soft landing, hard landing uh, situation. Uh, a lot of us would argue that the Fed was late to the table uh, in, uh, in, in starting to move those interest rates right. up. And now we've been, paying, we've been paying a massive price, literally, for yeah. that uh, on the way down. But we've got to stop, we've got to stop this tax and regulatory crushing, plus the rhetoric, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, small business drives the economy in so many places. And a place like right. Michigan, all right, we're, we're watching well, the UAW strikes and those kinds of things. But yeah, we've got to make sure that small businesses At least uh, in the news flow, in the news flow we've had, I think this has been way underreported. My anecdotes in New York City of small businesses getting absolutely crushed. There's no other way to put it. There is a real concern here being pushed and pulled on both the side of inflation, a tight labor market, and also higher rates so you can't borrow cheaply. But, Congressman, I would love your sense just to build on what you're talking about. Kelsey Barrow was on. She was talking about how a hard landing looks more likely. A lot of people, and I would guess that that actually perversely might be a benefit to the U.S. fiscal profile because that will lead to lower interest expenses. Right now, people are looking at the fact that there is no leader in the House and attributing part of the move in the Treasury market to that, saying that dysfunction in Congress is allowing yields to keep climbing as the fiscal profile of this nation gets called into question. How important is it to you to make sure that there is at least a functioning, at least a cross a discussion among representatives? Yeah, we have to have that. And look, I believe a number of my colleagues, some of them were chasing cameras. Uh, others of them had actual policy uh, issues. And uh, they erroneously, in my opinion, thought <clears throat> they would be able to move this process along more effectively and faster by shutting down the government. Uh, my experience, both in 2013 with the Obama administration, 2018 going into 2019 with the Trump administration, that isn't the case. Uh, so that was bad tactics on that part. But how do we restore uh, confidence? That's a key thing. We've got to get unified and quit the circular firing squad in the House of Representatives. But we do have long-term issues that we have to have to address I have a bill that would call for a debt commission a fiscal commission uh, that is going to look at all of the various trust funds uh, it would be something that couldn't be amended it would be forced to be take have a vote taken both in the House and the Senate and it and it allows us to address that 70% of all the federal spending that happens on autopilot I don't touch it as a house, member of the House. The senators don't touch it. The White House doesn't do anything with it. It's just on autopilot. And if we don't wrestle that dragon down to the ground and have an open and honest conversation with the American people, then we're going to be in real trouble if we see any of those bond rates continue to go up because we're knocking on the door of $800 billion in interest alone right now. Congressman, how much of an obstacle is the former President Trump 
to getting some sort of real discussion like this put forward, considering the fact that he was one of the people pushing for a shutdown, pushing for uh, basically just make it not happen. Don't pay the bills until you get what you want. Yeah, well, it's not helpful uh, at the end of the day. Like I said, I think that is, uh, that, that's an erroneous strategy. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, what uh, getting, getting back, though, to that long-term issue, you know, uh, both President Biden and President Trump had said, you can't look at uh, some of those massive drivers of our automatic spending. That's a mistake as well. And uh, I'm glad to see we've actually had this bipartisan bill. It was seven Republicans, seven Democrats, who were the original co-sponsors of Mia's author. Uh, to uh, to set up this commission, you know, and that ultimately doesn't matter what the politics is uh, is is trying to dictate out there on either side of the aisle. The realities are what we have to deal with here uh, as policymakers, and I hope my colleagues will step up and actually be policymakers and honest brokers. Congressman, thanks for your insight this morning, your perspective. Thank you, sir. Congressman Bill Heisinger there of Michigan. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.